0: Amen. Well, we are in the book of Malachi during this Advent season, looking basically at a chapter a week. So it's a breeze through the books, four chapters, and it is the last book of the Old Testament. If you're looking at one of our pew Bibles, it's page 754. So this this book here in Malachi is God's final word to his people before the very first Christmas. And so it's sort of like a time of waiting. In fact, I mentioned before that after Malachi, God does not speak to his people again for 400 years. We call it the silent years. And so this is God's final word. And so as we wait to celebrate Advent, we need to be asking, what ought we to be characterized by as we wait for Advent? What do we need to hear? Well, where have we been in Malachi so far? Remember that the people of God had been freed from exile, so they were no longer under the thumb of the Babylonians. They were back in their land. They had the temple rebuilt. Things should have been going really, really well, but instead they're being unfaithful. They're not committed to the Lord. In fact, God says they're despising his name rather than honoring his name. So what have we seen in chapter 1, verses 2 to 5? They're doubting God's love. You say, you love us, God? How have you loved us? And he tells them, well, I've loved loved you and I've hated Esau. And he shows how that he's done that. And then in chapter 1, verse 6 and following, they have this problem with what they're offering. Instead of offering their best, they're offering these bad sacrifices, trying to kind of get away with a bare minimum. Then we learn that it's really a problem because they've got bad leadership. Their priests are corrupt, can't be trusted or not leading them well. They're teaching, he says there in verse 9, with partiality, not teaching the whole counsel of God's law, not walking in light of the law, and therefore the community is in shambles. They're marrying unbelievers, and they're divorcing each other. And today we look at a purified people and then repentance and robbing God. So first let's look at chapter 2, 17 to 3, 5, at a purified people. And here we have them yet again grumbling. Yet again, they're questioning God. Look at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how? How have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? See, the wicked were prospering. At least they thought. You, you, God, you seem to be delighting in them. Why aren't things going better for us? It's kind of the same complaint in chapter 3, verse 13. Flip a page and notice what they say. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You said, it's vain to serve God. What's the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking in? as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. God, where's your justice? Do you care about these things? Why is it going so well for them and not going well for me? We can have this attitude too, can't we? Why did he get that promotion? I'm trying to serve the Lord here. How come she gets pregnant so easily and doesn't even care about the Lord? Why are their kids healthy? Why is my spouse so difficult? Why is my family so challenging? Why do I have all these bodily ailments and they're over there doing just fine? How come everything seems to go right for them? Those who don't care about your glory, especially in the age of fake book, right? Where everybody puts up their best poses as if their life is so shiny, and we can think, "Hmm, why is my life not going so well? And we can interpret life's challenges as if God's not there. Where's the God of justice? And we can wrongly think he's against us, and we can wrongly think, you know what, I've done my part. I'm trying to do my best. Therefore, things should go well in my life. Friends, that's not what the Bible teaches That's the prosperity gospel. That's not biblical Christianity. One of the core truths of the Christian faith is that our joy is not defined by external circumstances, but by the Lord who never changes. It is wrong to look around and to complain and be discontent and be jealous of others. It is wrong for us to define our value and our joy, find our joy and our contentment and our happiness based on how things are going. It's wrong for us to think, you know what? My life should be better than theirs. I call it the Asaph complex. You remember Asaph? It's in Psalm 73. Flip over there. Keep your finger in Malachi. Flip over to Psalm 73. Notice. Asaph's perspective is much like those here in Malachi. Psalm 73 verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek, meaning they've got what they need. They're well fed. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence cover them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, the increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. What's the point here? What's the point of serving God if it's going to go well for those who don't serve God? Verse 14, for all the day long, I've been, I've been stricken. I'm rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Asaph is looking around. He's interpreting his life by how things are going for him and by how things are going for others. He's lost perspective until, verse 15, 17, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How are they, how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors? Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. He gains perspective. He goes into the sanctuary of God, and he realizes the long-term perspective. You know what? Right now, weeping may endure for a moment, but there is an end coming. I've lost perspective, and now I have it back. Verse 24, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. It may go terribly bad for me. But God, not my external temporary circumstances, is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. See, in Malachi, basically, the people of God have become like Asaph. They've lost perspective. Notice, Malachi 2:17, it says, This perspective, this talk, this complaining, it's wearying the Lord. It says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. It's misunderstanding who God is. It's misunderstanding God's world. It's misunderstanding God's word. Friends, we don't want to be those who weary the Lord by wrong thinking. He's given us his word. Let's trust him. Even when we don't understand exactly why we are experiencing what we are experiencing, we know that he's for us. He's our father. We can trust him. He's at work, even in the hard stuff, friends, especially. And the hard stuff, right? Remember Romans 8, a chapter about suffering, and then we see in verse 29 that God's at work in all things for our good. And what is that good? It's not, our, it's not a life that's lacking trials. Our good is the conformity to Jesus Christ. He's at work. So we can sing, whatever my lot you've taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Well, what's God's response to all this wearying talk and all this questioning? Where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Where is the God of justice? He says, I'm on my way. I'm going to come, he says. I'm going to come. He's going to purify and he's going to judge. He's going to visit. But first, he's going to send a messenger ahead of him. And this is not the only place in the New Testament where God speaks of coming to his people. But before he comes, he sends a messenger. Right after the Exodus, God said he would send a messenger before his people as they entered the promised lands. So notice there's this theme here, right? Remember Exodus? They're in exile His people are in slavery. God's going to free them, God's going to deliver them, God's going to redeem them, but before he does that, before he comes to do that, he's going to send a messenger. Exodus chapter 24, the messenger goes before them as they enter the promised lands. Isaiah 40 and following is much the same context. They're no longer enslaved, though, to Egypt. Now they're enslaved to Babylon, and so they're enslaved, they're in exile, and God promises again. Isaiah 40 and following is all about a new exodus. God's going to return to his people again. He's going to come to them, and he's going to free them and restore them and forgive them. But notice how those really important chapters begin. This is Isaiah 40, really to the end of the book. Let me read Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins." A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The e- uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places like a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So notice, both times we learn in the Old Testament, Exodus 24, In Isaiah 40, the people of God are enslaved. God's going to come and restore. And in both times, he sends a messenger ahead of time. So here in Malachi, I will send a messenger. Who is this messenger? Malachi gives us a hint. Turn your Bible over to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Matthew chapter 11, verse 7 says this As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowd concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. He's the final prophet. And if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Or are flipping over to the gospel of Mark. How does Mark open? What does Mark want us to know? Here's the beginning of his gospel. What does he want us to think of? What does he want to draw to mind as he tells us who it is that we're waiting for? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the Prophets. And then he actually conflates here both Isaiah 40 that we read and Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Who is this messenger? Mark 1 verse 4, John appeared. Baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This messenger Malachi speaks of, this prophet like Elijah, is John the Baptist. I'm going to send a messenger, that's John. Now, who is the Lord who will come? God says in Isaiah 40 and in Malachi, I'm going to come after this messenger comes. Who is this Lord who is coming to restore his people? Jesus of Nazareth. Christmas. Incarnation. God is coming to restore his people, to rescue his people. God's coming to do it in and through Jesus. Jesus is the God-man, God with us. Emmanuel sent to end his people's spiritual exile and to bring transformation and bring redemption and bring freedom. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. And ransom captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. O come, now Dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. God is coming. He's going to send a messenger first. And what's he coming to do? Look again at Malachi 3.1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger, I think that's the same messenger going ahead, the messenger of the covenant, John the Baptist, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For He's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. So what is God coming to do? What is Christmas about, this first Christmas? The coming of God and Jesus Christ is about forming a purified people. No more unfaithfulness. He comes to pour out and demonstrate his love. He comes to transform hearts, change from the inside out that his people might worship him wholeheartedly. He comes, we saw last week, to restore marriages and rid his community of divorce. Christmas is about transformation. Christmas gets in our grill. It says the Lord's going to come first to his temple. He comes to his people first. They were corrupt. And so this messenger is going to go ahead and he's going to warn and he's going to call people to repentance. And so he comes and he warns these leaders of the temple. In fact, listen to the way John the Baptist puts it in Luke chapter 3, verse 4. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet... The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His message is get ready, get serious, turn to the Lord. And Luke. 315 he says this as the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all saying I baptize you with water but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork Is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This first Christmas is about Jesus bringing his winnowing fork. Ultimately, he will take it to the temple and he will clean it out. And he will warn them if you don't turn to me, this place will be destroyed. The Lord is coming, and who can endure it? Who can stand it? He's coming to purify his people. He's coming, he says, like a refiner's fire. Well, what's that? Refiners, of course, would take precious metals, whether well, it's gold or silver or copper, and the fire that would be used to melt it down. And when you melt down precious metals, the, the impurities would rise to the top. We call it dross. And so that refiner then would remove those impurities. And the metal is not destroyed. It's not a destroying fire. It's a refining fire. And so after the refining process, the metal is actually more valuable than it was beforehand. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith... More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God comes to refine us, and He often uses trials to do it. The various trials of life refine our faith, they test the genuineness of our faith. You want to know who's a genuine Christian and who's not? See how they respond to trials. There's no university like adversity. God's working out all things, Romans 8, 29. And it doesn't destroy us. That's why again we sing, the flame will not hurt you. God only designs our dross to consume and our gold to refine. Like a fuller's soap, a fuller was one who would cleanse the wool with soap. So Christmas is about God refining and cleansing his people, transforming them so that in the new day they will bring offerings in righteousness. They will please the Lord. No longer half-hearted worshipers. No longer characterized by corrupt leadership. No more bad marriages. No more jealousy and discontentment and complaining. He's coming to purify, but not only purify, he's coming to judge. See that in verse 5. Malachi 3, 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired workers and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. He says, you don't worry about the wicked prospering. I'm going to take care of that. I'm going to make all things right. God will judge And he doesn't list every wrongdoing that he will judge here, but notice some of the things that do characterize those who will be judged. He mentions sorcery, which looks different today, but it's basically when people look to other places for power and for favor than the Lord. Adulterers, those unfaithful to their spouse. Liars, those who don't tell the truth. God's people tell the truth. Those who are unjust, those who don't care about the marginalized, those who don't care about justice. And indifference to justice is not much different from injustice. So we learn here from Malachi that our our vertical relationship needs to have implications horizontally, right? Our worship of God, in other words, involves how we treat others. Adultery, how we treat our spouse. Lying, the person we're lying to, the person we're lying about. Defrauding people, oppressing the vulnerable. God says, don't worry. You think the wicked are prospering. You worry about you. I will handle the rest. Judgment's coming, and it's coming to the household of God first. So the goal of Christmas, this first one, is a purified people, and it's in and through John the Baptist and then Jesus Christ that God comes to purify his people. Second, repentance and robbing God. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, Do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you've turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God says, I'm not changing. I do not change. I am the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. So you're not consumed. He offers forgiveness. He offers reconciliation. If they will return to him. What a blessed invitation that stands to this day. Though you've rebelled, God says, return to me and I will return to you. You're never too far gone. Maybe you think that. You know what I'm here? I've just done too much. I've turned my back on the Lord. That's a lie. God always has his arms open. If you will return, God says, I will return to you. God invites you, repent, turn from your sin and turn to him, repent and believe the gospel. The roadmap to restoration is repentance. And so you can have your relationship. They could have their relationship with God renewed if they would repent and return to the Lord. But in this case, what would that return look like? Look again at verse seven. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. So here we learn returning to the Lord means tithing. Why is that? Why does repentance involve tithing? Where does this come from? Well, I think because the way we handle the resources God has given, our giving is a barometer for our hearts. God knows that if he truly has your heart, he will have your bank account. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. They are bound together. Your heart and your money are tied together. If you are not all in financially, you're not all in. And if you are all in financially, you are likely all in. That's why Jesus put it this way. These are, Listen to these contrasts, he says. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Remember from Romans 1, all people worship, all people ascribe worth to someone or something. And really, you could boil it down to God or money. That's why Luther said when someone comes to Christ, there really are three conversions you have the head, the heart, and the purse. You know, we Texans love Sam Houston. Maybe you didn't know he came to Christ. And after he was baptized, He said he wanted to pay half of the local minister's salary. And someone asked him, why would you do that? And he said, well, my pocketbook just got baptized as well. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are the the most helpful chapters on giving. I want to read five, six verses here. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched In every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service, again, he's speaking of giving, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their, the other church, by their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Why? Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gifts. I find that language just fascinating. By your giving, the church will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Our submission to the gospel then entails generosity. Here's how the NIV translates it. It's your obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel. This is why Christians who don't give generously to the local church and beyond, it's a gospel problem. It's a grace problem. They haven't understood and experienced grace because grace moves us to generosity. And this was the problem with the people. They're questioning God's love. Therefore, they're half-hearted in their devotion. And they weren't offering their first and best. Remember chapter 1. Flip over there. Malachi 1.8. Just as a sample of the problem, when you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. They weren't offering their first and best. They're like, you know what? Yeah, we've got this one-year-old one male unblemished bull, and I know that's what God requires of us. But boy, we could use that. We could benefit financially. So let's get old Bessie, old blind and lame Bessie, and let's offer her. And Malachi, God rebukes his people before the first Christmas. Both the quality and the quantity of your giving is lame, he says. It's focused on yourself. And listen, this is, a word, this is a word for us in America. You know, America has two, three, four primary idols. Every country has their own. One of our primary idols is materialism and consumerism. Focused on themselves. God says, you rob me when you don't tithe. Look at chapter 3, verse 8 again. Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? What does it mean to rob somebody? It means to take something that's not yours. And God says you rob God when you don't tithe your income. Because at the end of the day, friends, our income is not our income. It's his See, we are just stewards. We have been entrusted with everything we have. We actually don't own anything. Stewards, not owners. In Psalm 50, verse 10, God says, Every beast of the forest is mine. doesn't matter what's branded. It's mine, he says. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. All that moves in the field is mine. So what does he say? Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. The storehouse, of course, was the temple and all its storage facilities says bring the tithe in. Now, it's important to understand the tithe in the old covenant. It was required in the law. Tithe just means 10%, but in reality it was quite a bit larger. They had the Levite tithe that would support the work of ministry. The priests would do all sorts of things, so that was 10%. They had the festival tithe, which was another 10% that would help throw the festival and feast required in the law. Then there was the poor tithe, and it was 10% every third year. Then there were also various others we find in the law. We have the temple tax. We have the, the call for people not to harvest the corner of their field so that the marginalized might benefit. And so we're looking at at least 23% a year. And they're not being faithful. They're robbing God, he says. Now, I've got a lot of friends, there are a lot of teachers who get really passionate about the fact that, well, that was part of the law. That was part of the old covenant law. Tithing is not mentioned again in the New Testament and they're right about that. But sometimes it seems like they're advocating giving less or not giving at all. But consider the differences between the Old Covenant people of God and the New Covenant people of God. What we have that they did not have in the Old Covenant. They did not have the Messiah yet. They did not have the life of Jesus. They did not have the teachings of Jesus. They did not have the cross of Christ. They did not have the resurrection and the power that accompanies it. They did not have full and final forgiveness of sins. They did not have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. As Romans 6 puts it, they were under law. We're no longer under law, we're under grace. Here's our John chapter 1, verse 17 puts it. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so the question is do you think we should be giving more or less than old covenant Israel? Randy Alcorn calls tithing the training wheels of giving. It's a good way to start if you're not there trained you to be able to do more by the way just a footnote starting in January first Sunday in January in this room I believe maybe in the fellowship hall we'll let let you know but we're having a study called the treasure principle so Sundays 9 30 six weeks long let me encourage you to come six week study on what I think is the best theology of stewardship out there but something else to keep in mind was that the tithe actually predates the law It's first mentioned, I believe, in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek tithes to Abraham. Then it's mentioned in Genesis 28, Jacob tithes. And add to that, in the New Covenant, Jesus actually doesn't lower the bar, does he? On the law, he actually ratchets it up. Just think about the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said in the law, do not murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry with a brother or sister. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, don't even look at a woman with lust or you've already committed adultery in your hearts. See, grace demands and deserves more than the law, actually. And it's also important to know God's not commanding ties here because he needs our help. He has the storehouse. He doesn't need us, but he invites us in to the good life, which is the generous life. God doesn't need your money. He desires your hearts. And notice what he promises here. This is astounding. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you. So that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is astonishing. I mean, where else in Scripture do we have God pleading with us that we might let him bless us? He says, put me to the test. I'll open the windows of heavens and empty them. I have the cattle on a thousand hills. I will provide for you. I will protect you. All nations will then call you blessed. Do you remember what we saw in verse 9? Look at chapter 3, verse 9. You're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation. You will go from cursed to blessed. God says, a closed hands cannot receive the blessings I will give. Now, this is a proof text for the prosperity gospel. And if you've been here any time, you know that I hate the prosperity gospel. This is not the prosperity gospel. This is not sow a seed and let me buy a jet. This is not treating God like a pinata. But we can't discount this promise. We cannot discount this promise. And listen, I wish I could tell you story after story about how the Lord has provided for us. Alicia and I were married and and we decided from the beginning we're going to give our first and best right off the top. We were broke. We had to go to grad school a couple times. Uh, Alicia stayed home a lot we've got a lot of children pastors don't make a lot of money the Lord has provided again and again and again for us we've seen this promise come to fruition and you say you know what I can't do it can't do it one time pastor David Jeremiah had a couple come to him and they said that you know what I can't do this I can't give we've we've got too many too much going on too many needs we're in debt and and pastor and his wisdom said, you know what how about, you? how about this? You, you write a, a, a check. You write a check right off the bat, first thing in the month. You come bring it to me. And I'll just hold on to it. And let's see how it goes. And if you need this money, come into the month. You just come back to me, and I won't cash it. Don't worry. I'll give it right back to you. Do you trust me to do that? Oh, yes, pastor. Yes, pastor, we trust you. He said, shame on you. Because you trust your earthly pastor more than your heavenly father. Well, what does this mean, friends? Well, I think first, don't rob God. And here at Southside, we've got a way that we're gonna start helping you. I think we've got a picture here. Starting next week, we've got a non-tither board. We're gonna start putting it up there in the hallway. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know how I feel about it, but Nathan insisted it was a good idea and y'all would be on board, so I... <laughs> no, we don't, we don't look at your giving. And and honestly, we don't don't care about your giving. It's not about us, and it's not about our church budget. The Lord has taken care care of us. This is about you and the Lord. This is about your hearts. And at the end of the day, this is about your joy. This is about the good life and God's glory. Four quick truths as we go. Number one, let's just be real with each other. Remember, all are worshipers. All are ascribing worth to something. All people do tithe. All people give. The matter is, what is it they're giving to? What are they giving their first and best to? It's a matter of priorities. And again, we can always discern priorities, not by attendance on a Sunday morning, but by a checkbook. So our disposable income is going somewhere. That's the first thing. Let's be real. Number two, just start. Just start somewhere. It's a really good timing here with Malachi 3. This wasn't planned, but to go into a new year, to be in, to begin to give. If you're not at 10%, 10% is a great goal. Work to get there. And then go beyond. Pray about going beyond or give, give beyond the local church to various causes. Missionaries. Don't rob God. He promises here. Put me to the test. Third, if we had more time, we would look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to see that a few things that ought to characterize our giving in the new covenant. It ought to be cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. And it may not start that way. Sometimes it's painful at first. Cheerful and then sacrificial. If it doesn't hurt, it's not sacrificial, right? So no sacrifice on the sacrifice. is not sacrifice. And so by our giving, we ought to have to say no to some things. Our, our lives ought to look a little different because we're determining we're going to give rather than gets. And then proportional. Proportional. Number four. Just a reminder, giving leads to joy. And you all know this. If you're a parent in here or a grandparent in here, Christmas is upon us. What's your favorite part of Christmas? Is it opening your one or two gifts? Probably not. It's watching your kids and watching your grandkids open gifts. Jesus said it. It is more blessed. Remember, that word means happy. It is more blessed to give than to receive. True happiness is found in giving. And those of you who have this gift, you know that. It's the good life, hard at first, but the true path to joy. So, friends, don't look around and think that the God of justice is missing. He's not missing. He has come. Christmas is true. Emmanuel has come, and he is at work now. He's kept his promises. He will keep his promise, and he is at work now refining us. He's at work to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous to live for his glory with heads hearts, and wallets.